You're listening to the Crowdfunding Nerds Podcast, a podcast that will help you succeed before, during, and after your crowdfunding event. And now, here is your host, Andrew Lowen. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another awesome episode of Crowdfunding Nerds. I am your fearless leader, Andrew Lowen, and I am joined, as always, by Sean and not Rick today. Instead, Rick has been replaced by Mo and Jad from Cation Arts. They are friends of the Crowdfunding Nerds podcast, and they're based in the UAE in Dubai, having released several games and um, run multiple campaigns. And I'm really excited to talk to you guys. Welcome to the show. And it's an absolute pleasure to be here, Andrew. And it's always fun to talk to you and Sean. So we really look forward to sharing our experience and also learning from you as well, as always. Pleasure to be on here. I think it was about a year ago that we were working together on the very first ATW campaign, maybe a year ago to the date. So it's fun to reconnect. Yes. And you guys have been very busy in this last year. I, I would love to hear, you know, maybe just for our listeners, what have you been up to? Uh, what's coming down the pipe? What's, I mean, I, we know that um, All Time Wrestling Extreme Edition is live right now on Kickstarter. I have the All Time Wrestling game like to my left. Tell everybody what's, what you guys, how many cookie jars your guys' hands are in right now. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, we're a small team, but we punch big. I think initially, as you mentioned, we have the All Time Wrestling franchise. And if this isn't news to you, Extreme Edition will not be the last expansion. There are number of other products that we've already promised our consumers coming in future years. So that's a, a franchise that's going to keep going for years and years to come. On Conquer uh, Empire Rises, that's uh, our up next upcoming crowdfunding project in July on GameFound. It is an expansion to our first game ever published in 2019, 2020, uh, which was called Conquer Final Conquest. And that's an interesting project because it was a uh, it was our first experience in, in producing a game and designing a game. And we thought, why not go back and apply whatever we learned over the past couple of years? And how do we improve the design? And how do we improve the production? And how do we improve the artwork and everything that we've picked up along the way? So that is the second pillar of our, of our business is strategy games. And then the third pillar is uh, sustainability games. And we just recently successfully funded on, uh, on GameFound back in January, uh, One Earth, which has... And you can see the Dice Tower play. It's a lot of fun, but it also has a very strong environmental message. And we are right now in the process of just about to ship out all the fulfillment orders to our backers around the world. And we have a couple of other products that we haven't announced yet, and maybe we can talk about them in, in the future as well. Oh, that's exciting. Yes. Please do come back to the podcast because I, it's always really entertaining talking to you guys. And I'm just, I'm actually really impressed as to the, the quantity of projects you're able to release as well as the the cadence in which you're able to fulfill them because as you mentioned you know you have a small team but you're working simultaneously on different projects and I, i'm really interested in learning more about that and you know maybe to kind of frame for everybody the discussion that we intend to have is always free-flowing we always want to talk about just in general on crowdfunding nerds we always want to talk about first-hand experience and just learn from people that, you know, we stand on the shoulders of giants as, as the saying goes, and you guys are paving the way you're ahead of many. And even for those that may be ahead of you, you have certainly learned lessons that everybody can apply. But, um, we wanted to talk about, you know, that kind of focus a little bit on like how you guys can be so efficient as a small team, then how, you know, just the difference between game found and Kickstarter for you guys, because you've used both. And also, you know, because you guys are in the UAE, that's uh, not a Kickstarter-friendly region. And so I'd love to just 
you know, glean some wisdom on all of these elements. And then wherever the conversation goes, that's, that's, that's where I'd love to uh, take it. Yeah, I'd really like to know about being based in the UAE and the challenges that faces for, because I'm sure that we have lots of listeners who might not be in the UAE, but they're in other countries which aren't Kickstarter friendly. And maybe if you explain why you think that's the case, why doesn't Kickstarter allow projects in the UAE? And then what, what things did you do to sort of overcome those challenges? Uh, Andrew's first question about the cadence yeah. in which in which we work. And I think there, there's three parts to it here. First of all, it's um, mine and Muhammad's experience and the team's experience in general. We all come from corporate and government backgrounds, which are heavily demanding in terms in terms of output. So it's sort of embedded in us to kind of like always rush, rush, rush and, and work at that steady pace. And we wouldn't have it any other way. And that is not, not only reflected in the projects and how we roll out our projects. So we always have a project in one of the different stages of the product uh, lifeline lifetime. So we always have a project in testing, a project that's being marketed, a project that's being fulfilled. So when you split those up in, in that manner, it kind of allows you to, if you're trying to play test three, four different games at the same time, your, your head's going to go all over the place. But if you're focused on playtesting one game, but you're marketing and doing a campaign for another, but then you're fulfilling and doing logistics for a third, that allows you to sort of be way more efficient in your time and and and, and just your overall sort of personal sanity. The other the That's other really thing, Andrew, uh, that yeah, I think allows us to do so is um, in a lot of the what, what quote unquote downtime that we get, we start thinking of various projects and initiating them and working on them. And, you know, it's a, it's a start, pause kind of thing. And, you know, if you have enough of them on your plate, you'll discover eventually that there are a couple that are, that are ready right now. And as Jad mentioned, then you start thinking about which ones do I push first and which ones do I kind of wait on and how, which kind of project cycles are, are, you, are you at? I think the second element is something that has been taught in business schools from, from the eons of time, which is outsourcing. So, you know, we keep the core things internally within the team, things like game design. But, you know, when it comes to graphic design, we have a graphic designer, a lead graphic designer, but she doesn't work on every single project. Uh, at times she works on some of the projects and others are outsourced to, to other elements. Same thing with the artwork. You know, we, uh, we have uh, a, an artist that we like to use, but he doesn't work on all our projects because we realize we have several projects in parallel and we don't want to delay them as such. So we're, we're just using set of crowdfunding, you know, we're, we're using that crowd mentality to, to be able to help us in a, in a very simple business matter of outsourcing when, when we need to. And I think maybe the third element in terms of the, the business mindset, I think a lot of people get into designing games as, as a passion project. And I think a lot of time you have projects that are stuck in, in playtesting limbo for, for yeah. too long. And I think and this goes back to, to both of our experiences as like sometimes when you just have a feeling that the thing is ready, just go for it and, 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 and publish, you know, and, and, that, and then there's, there's, a, there's a certain uh, level of diminishing returns in terms of like the playtesting and the tweaking and the fixing of little things here and there that at some point you're, you're just burning your your own company time and your own company money by trying to do that that is not a problem if you are doing this as a hobby and that that is your passion product and you have something else that you're trying that, that, that that's your, that's winning your bread but we've 
we've adopted this company. We, we're trying to make this a, a self-fulfilling, uh, sorry, a self-sustaining uh, enterprise. For Muhammad, he juggles a couple of roles and his 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 day job and this. But for me, this this is it. So I'm 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 a hundred percent all the time on Cation Arts. And if we are if we need to make this a sustainable business, sometimes you have to leave your personal feelings as a as a perfectionist gamer aside and just say it's good enough and, and, and roll with it. While saying that, maybe if you could enlighten us on your playtesting process for all-time wrestling, because you got glowing reviews, uh, particularly from the, the folks at Shelf Side who loved it. They, I think they rated it the, the highest rated Kickstarter game ever that they've ever covered. So that's, a, that's no easy feat to achieve. So you know, you're talking about sort of truncating this playtesting session. So maybe just help people understand what did the playtesting look like for all-time wrestling? And then you know, how, how were you able to, under these restraints, to produce such great results? Great. That's, that's a great question. And also, by the way, it feeds into the difficulty of Kickstarter. And I know that might not seem like a good connection, but I'll, I'll, I'll make that uh, in time. So when I started all-time wrestling, actually, right before Jad joined, a couple of months before he joined the company. And... I start off my playtesting is initially I playtest against myself. My wife always thinks I'm mad that she comes down to the living room at 3 a.m. And I'm just jumping from one seat to another. You know, that's what I initially start with. And then I start with obviously playtesting with with a few people here locally that I believe, uh, you know, are my target audience. I don't just playtest with with everyone. But the difficulty that I was alluding to of running a Kickstarter is your the majority of your market of Kickstarter comes from the US and Europe and to some extent Australia, right? But it's really North America that's your biggest mover and, and perhaps Europe. And when there's a 12-hour time difference and sometimes you know between 8 and 12 hours, that means mm-hmm. I have to stay up at 1 in the morning when I have work the next day just to play test with a random stranger that we found on Facebook or a part of our network. Because remember, this was before... We even launched the first product, so no one even knew about this product. Um, and we had to we had to speak to complete strangers on Facebook and just post about it and say, anyone interested in playtesting? And there were occasions where I stayed up at 1 a.m., completely exhausted, and the person just never showed up, right? That's oh, happened man. countless occasions, and, and Jad has seen it. So I think initially we used Tabletop Simulator, and we've, we playtested uh, with a couple of people. We knew we had gold. Because the amazing thing about all-time wrestling is from the absolute first playtest to the last playtest, I've never left the table with someone telling me, eh, it's not ready, or it's a bad game, or it wasn't fun. It was usually, can I you know, register my name here? I want to play this. And then they might add one or two comments that we obviously ended up working on. Uh, so I think we got lucky with all-time wrestling because that allowed us lucky in terms of we, we got the game design properly, uh, you know, very well done early on, because that allowed us to build an audience uh, real quick. And I think I, I must give credit to Jad, because I, I usually think from a, a gateway gaming kind of point of view, I think that we should reach as many people as possible. And Jad is honestly the more serious gamer of, of both of us. He's probably played double the games that I've played. And we balance each other out because I'm more of the, uh, you know, I like to think about the general aspects and Jad really focuses on every single detail. You know, he doesn't, doesn't like <clears> to <throat> let things go. 
And I think when he came on to the all-time wrestling project, he came up with a few changes that seem minor in the gameplay. You know, something like, you know, when the defender is getting attacked, uh, initially the way I designed the rules is you either gain, you, you gain a stamina and a card. And he just made mm-hmm. the simple tweak of either gain a stamina or a card. And that oh, added okay. so much strategy to the game. Like a and meaningful so, you know, decision, right? Yes. And I think Judd's, that, that production from Judd and that um, fine-tuning of game design really helped us achieve that amazing score that you've mentioned with Shelf Side. The other yep. thing I want to talk about in terms of all-time wrestling is I'm a massive wrestling fan. So when I designed the wrestling game, it wasn't like I was trying to fit a system onto a wrestling program. I designed it from the ground up. So, so and, and Jad, you know, used to be a wrestling fan and now he's getting back into it. Uh, and and we've, we've designed a wrestling program, that, that a, a game that really speaks to wrestling. And to the point where, you know, we have all these match modes, we have an entire solo campaign, we built an entire universe in our first product when most publishers would have gone just for the simple two-player game. And I think that's what built a, a strong following and uh, allowed the, the folks at Shelfside to really enjoy our, our offering. You know, a lot of people will design in terms of theme first or they'll have a cool mechanical interaction that they like, oh, I have a cool bidding system. Um, Gil Hova is a designer that I, I listen to every once in a while on, on, on their podcast. Um, which the name is escaping me right now, pretty popular podcast um, in board game design. And he has his auction mechanism, I believe, that he always designs every game with an auction mechanism. And by the time he releases it, it it does not have the auction mechanism. Um, (laughs) But but, um, when you design a game with mechanics first, it it can sometimes feel really separated from the theme, which is a, a, a break, it breaks the immersion of what it is that you're doing. You know, I feel like in board games and video games for that matter, any, anytime, you know, RPG, whatever, anytime we're make, we're playing make-believe it's, you know, the first question, even my daughter's playing with their Barbie dolls. They're asking, who am I? Uh, why does that matter? And, uh, what is my goal? You know, like, how do I win? How do I win at, at, at house? Like I make my sisters do what I want or whatever. Right. In board games, you know, with a theme like wrestling, I really don't want to be like, all right, I'm going to roll the dice to see if my slam from the top ropes or my drop kick from the top ropes will work. I want that thing to land. And I just, I want to feel like I just drop kick someone from the top rope. Not like I moved some cubes on a board, not like I, you know, rolled some dice and the odds were in my favor or, or, you know, that kind of thing. And um, I really think that all time wrestling does such a good job blending the theme and the mechanics in a way that it, it really could not be another theme. I mean, I, you know, I think, I think that now with the knowledge that you guys have, it could be like, if you wanted to, you could come up with like, like we're, Sean and I were talking before this, like a world of Warcraft dual uh, yeah. system. It's like, all right, you're a hunter against a rogue or whatever. I, I think that you guys could probably find a way to adapt it, but I really feel strongly that this game, one of the best things about it is that you designed it for the experience of uh you know just to like satisfy that that hardcore wrestling fan and i am also you know i'm probably like jad i'm a i was once a very hardcore wrestling fan when it was wwf and then you know (laughs) nwo and wcw and whatever and i was watching everybody move back and forth we'd play all the wrestling games on nintendo 64 then we'd go on the trampoline and we would wrestle, I know. <laughs> yeah, we would definitely accidentally throw people off or whatever. It's like, oh, sorry, you fell onto that thorn bush. 
get back up, <laughs> you know, you know, you, you didn't get tagged in. So, um, but I, I, I think, can you speak to that, that experience? You know, it felt like you designed for experience. What advice would you have for people designing for theme mechanics experience? Like how, what advice would you give if they're like, Oh, I have a really cool idea, but I can't think of the theme or, you know, that kind of thing. Is that, how would you counsel someone to move forward and design a good product? Uh, I, I think me and Jad uh, design differently. Yeah. Um, so there's there's an aspect in, in design and in playtesting that I always come back to. And uh, you, men- you mentioned something to that extent is like, w- what is my goal? For me, it's always how am I feeling right now? Is this I, I, every single move that I make while designing or when playing a board game? I, I, I go in and do a, a feelings check. I, I check if I'm feeling good right now. How am I feeling? Okay, if I'm, am I feeling bad because I'm playing bad or am I feeling bad because the game is being unfair to me or there's something that's happening that I don't agree with from a, from, from a game design perspective? And I do that check every, every 30 seconds, every minute throughout the process is I go back and I check if I'm being fulfilled every step of the way. And... And the way to design for it is, is sometimes, a lot of times, it's just throwing stuff at a board and see what sticks. I think maybe for me, it's because I've played a lot of games, so I can draw from a lot of different things mm-hmm. and sometimes mission mash them and distort them and then bring them back to shape from different games and different things that I've experienced. Muhammad doesn't have that burden. Sometimes he comes up with a, with a mechanic or something that's completely out, out of the blue. Sometimes he will just sit there and explain a game to me that he thought up for during the night and I'll just tell him the game that he... It's a, it's a published game and it's exactly the game that, that, he, that he thought of. Like, have you heard of this game? I'm like, no. Like, this, that's the game that you just described to me. It's like, oh, okay. So, and then we go back to the drawing board. And so, yeah, I, I think being a duo that is, that, that is so very different in taste and in the approach. So he's the numbers guy. He's the math. He's the balancing. I'm more of the, as I mentioning, the feeling. Does it feel good kind of like aspect? Does it... I, I, I also, when I'm designing, I also count the number of m- m- physical moves I made to execute mm. something. Yes. That I, mm. that, that, that I need to move my hand five times or three times to do something that's important or less important. Were, were my physical gestures, the weight of them and how much I moved important, sorry, were they too much for the importance of the task I'm trying to achieve? So those are the kind of kind of things I I think of, and again, always checking back to see, do I feel like I'm in this thing? And that's I think requires a very uh, deep connection with one's emotions. I think, and maybe that's something that not a lot of people have, or 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 <laughs> yeah. are, or, or or you know kind of take advantage that's, of, yeah. and and I think. Uh, the thing that I would advise the listeners, uh, because I think what we want to do is we want to share as much knowledge as possible. I think the key to success that we're trying to allude to is you got to have a team and you got to have diversity in that team. And I don't mean demographic diversity. We both come from the same region. We're both males. To have Neural demographic diversity, diversity yeah. is amazing, right? But what I what exactly what you just said, Andrew, you need also diversity in taste. You need diversity in thinking. I think from from my perspective, for example, I design from from theme down. I don't even think about the mechanic. I think about the theme, what should actually happen 
and then I design the mechanics accordingly. And for me, just like uh, Jad mentioned, and for you wrestling fans out there, you'll appreciate it. So I grew up watching, um, uh, you know, WWF, and then I, I got into TNA for a while. And the reason I got into TNA was a guy called AJ Styles that you you all know right now. And AJ Styles was absolutely amazing before WWE. I mean, he used to do things that he never does at this age. And I, I read an interview for him and he said, and they asked him, how do you come up with these things, these incredibly creative things? He said, I never grew up watching wrestling. Or he, he, he wasn't a wrestling fan. So he came in with a black blank canvas that he could paint. With no, with no prejudice. Yeah. So, yeah. so, you know, even our design process is different. When I want to design a game, a particular game, believe it or not, I don't go and buy all the products that are similar or the same theme, play them, and then start thinking. I like to do my own thing, and then I play these games so that they mm -hmm. don't affect or influence my thinking at all. And Jad does it the other way. So I think that, that diversity is, is really important because you need both approaches to, to arrive at a, a good product. Yeah. One piece of advice I would give also to aspiring game designers, don't play just the best games. Mm. Play the badly rated games. Yeah. Every single badly rated game was a spark of genius at some point that got maybe misinterpreted or misexecuted. There's a lot of things you can learn and a lot of like unique things that you can draw from the games that you would not normally buy and not normally put on your shelf. That's a great piece of advice. I'm I'm really excited. And and by the way, you know, just for everybody listening, I know this is a marketing podcast about crowd, you know, focused on crowdfunding, like before, during, after, and all of that. But really, what what success comes down to, it boils down to a really, really great product, you know. Um, and what we're talking about is, in essence, like the the recipe of a fantastic product. And uh, you know, earlier Mo, you said about all time wrestling that it was very, very easy to get a play tester to want to follow along like oh my goodness i need to i need to follow this i need to have this when it comes out and that kind of thing and um you know every once in a while we'll have you know we'll we'll take on a client and we'll have an issue getting emails for under let's say for our you know to target uh, like our benchmarks and below if we get an email at $2.50 that is interested in in the game that is kind of like our highest acceptable benchmark if it's higher than that, there's a problem. Maybe it's the wrong audience. Maybe it's, you know, the wrong messaging or that kind of yeah. thing. It is possible that the game is not that interesting. And uh, that is something that most of the time, I mean, we, when we feel that way, we usually don't take a project like that on yeah. and we'll give them that feedback. But a lot of the time, man, it's, uh, it's tough to see people just hold on to their idea and say, no, yeah. no, it's, it's going to be, it's going to be good. And, um, and I feel like, playtesting when somebody is really excited about a game they i mean it's so easy to get them to buy it if they really want it they'll buy it and so all you have to do is just make them really really want it with a fantastic game that's innovative and all of that i absolutely love what you're saying <laughs> and honestly uh, it is a crowdfunding podcast and we have a lot to, to share I, I wanted to to share uh, something on in terms of, because you mentioned something very important, which is a product will speak to itself. And you're absolutely right. Uh, and the product involves artwork, it's the, it's the experience, it's everything involved. But I think it's not just the product. I think more important than the product is the service. And I think if you ask me today, Mohammed, what distinguishes Cat Eye and Arts from most publishers out there? I'll tell you it's customer service. 
And to explain why, and I know a lot of companies claim to have amazing customer service, and I'm sure they do, but I think we take it to the next level. And the reason why is basically uh, our background, um, as Jad was mentioning. So just for the listeners out there, I, I was asked uh, back in 2016 or 17 uh, to raise a, a philanthropic fund, which I've, I've done before. I've started a few businesses that were successful. I've, I've worked in different businesses. But I was able to raise over uh, $300 million from donors, about 160 donors, uh, large corporations and donors, for a philanthropy that focused on education. And not only did I learn a lot about crowdfunding, I know it's not crowdfunding, but it's a different type <laughs> of crowdfunding. It's a much more intense. Yeah. And you know, you're, you're not getting backers you know, asking you about their $34. You're getting people asking about their $10 million and what, what you've yeah. done with it which you know really sets you up for crowdfunding yep. but the other element <laughs> the other the element won't here. come after you you'll have people black bag you and you'll never be seen again well i i managed to escape that fate and and you know you're you're not only learning how to raise the funds but how to manage your money very properly how to invest it how to get a good return on it how to maintain it how to uh, deploy it in the way that you've promised those, those rich uh, donors who have really done this out of the goodness of their heart. And, and that experience really helped us because if you're dealing with these VVIPs, you really need to be excellent at customer service. The guy just handed over $10 million or $5 million or, or $100 million. You got to be on your A game in terms of how you respond to those donors. So, you know, I had rules in my organization where the average response time was officially 12 hours. But in reality, any donor will tell you I responded to them within five minutes, no matter how busy I am, whether it was 3 a.m., five minutes and they would get a response. Thing, yeah, things like, you know, if someone's unhappy, we never let it get there, but we would do everything possible to, to turn that around. And we've implemented those same mechanics. Uh, and that's how I met Jad, by the way. It was an event and he was, he was there as part of one of uh, our partners. And, and we've, we've implemented those same learnings. How do you bring that to a massive crowdfunding campaign? And you'll notice if you just go on Kickstarter right now, you will never find a comment. You'll never find a, a message that went unanswered for more than probably six or seven hours. We are on top, whether it's on Facebook, whether it's on GameFound, whether it's... And, and actually, that's one thing that I wanted to criticize GameFound on. So I love both crowding pl platforms. We kind of messed up with some of the responses for One Earth on GameFound. We didn't hit those 12 hours because you never get a no notification. And I, yes. I wasn't aware of that. And then I, I looked up like two or three weeks later. I'm like, no one's commenting on this project. And maybe it's, it's some of the configurations that we didn't, we, didn't, uh, we didn't put properly. It was our first time using GameFound. But I, was, you know, I, I had this horror look on my face that were these comments that weren't answered for a, quite a long time. But I love that about Kickstarter, the Kickstarter app, those quick notifications. You get it on your phone. You're able to respond from your phone. I think that's lovely, and that allows you to go beyond the limit. And I, I haven't looked at this something you can enable, actually, on GameFound. Or, or did you check? It's not there. I, I haven't checked, actually. Okay. Maybe Andrew knows. You know, actually, I, I think uh, I could speak to this. I know that they're actively working on all sorts of different features, but I believe that it was either from the backer's end or the creator's end where you could get a daily digest of comments or you know um you know i, I believe that that's a very recent implementation that gamefound has, has and, and, and to gamefound's credit i mean what what i, I mean, this is what one thing that we criticize them on but i know that they're working on a lot of things and the personal approach being able to email somebody 
yeah. e- e- emailing Philip and Michelle and getting answers to all the questions and but for them being involved and being hands-on in the marketing, I think that 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 was something that's impeccable in terms of like what 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 they offer. Yeah, I mean, if you, if we're talking about customer service, it's game found all yeah. the way. With all due respect <laughs> to Kickstarter, right? Yeah, I don't um, even have an email to talk to, you and I'm like a professional <laughs> crowdfunder uh, at, at Kickstarter. You know, and I'll tell you a horror story because you asked how difficult is it to run a campaign outside the Kickstarter-friendly country. So I want to yeah. explain this to the, to to the listeners. For those who are in a Kickstarter-friendly country, it's almost impossible. And the reason I say this is, you know, my friend uh, ran a campaign on Kickstarter, but he's a British national, so he has a British a- address and a British passport. For someone like me, who's from the UAE or from or, or someone like Jad, and we don't have a residence in the UK or the US, it is extremely difficult. So what what you have to do is the process is you have to actually set up a company in the US, and for you for someone like me in the UAE, who, by the way, there's no income tax in the UAE. We don't deal with much government bureaucracy to then have to deal with setting up a business in the U.S. with all the respect to the U.S. government was just a, a mind boggling experience of trying to find which state to, to, to set up in, uh, you know, um, if taxing, you know, filing for the for the tax ID, uh, the EID or whatever it's called. Mm-hmm. The My God, that, we yeah. it was crazy. So it took took a year for us to do all the research, hire the right lawyers to set this up, you know, talk to the right people. We're still struggling with, we just filed our first income tax and God knows if we've done it right, even though we've, we hired someone. So the fact that you have to learn the legal system of an entire new country is on itself a massive issue and a massive thing that deters you from starting your own business in, in, in any country, not the, not just the US. So I think that's, the first issue that you have is that massive legal bureaucratic issue of trying to set up a, a company in a country that is very unfamiliar to you. I think the second thing is even once you set up, I mean, we had a party when we set up that business. You know, we're ready to go. Let's do it. <laughs> and what happened was we then realized we need the U.S. bank account. You can't even register it to a, a bank account in the UAE. And for those of you who don't know the UAE, Dubai is one of probably the five top cities in the world from a business point of view, from a financial point of view. It's one of the big five financial hubs in the world. And we were not able to even link a bank account in Dubai to to the U.S. company. So we then had to set up a U.S. company, a U.S. bank account. And guess what? Most banks would not take us because we're not U.S. residents. And the only two banks that would take us were SVB and Mercury. And thank God we went with Mercury. Right. Uh, so as if, if you haven't heard, uh, SVB went went bankrupt, right? Went belly up. Yeah. So um, so even your your choices of starting a bank account is so limited. And the other issue that we have is that it's not just about uh, the bank account. Every other element, whether we wanted uh, a conversation with someone, whether we wanted a, uh, a particular uh, account to open, they needed a U.S. number and we weren't able to provide that. Long story short is, we're about to launch on Kickstarter. We've told everyone that we're launching on Kickstarter because we have a bank ID, we have a, we have a company, and we've filed for the EID, which they told us would be ready in four weeks. We filed for that uh, like a month ago, and we're like, we're going to get it every day. We got it about, what, 10, 10 weeks later? And so yeah. we got it like a week or two before yeah. we were supposed to launch on Kickstarter. We 
immediately hit the submit button on, on Kickstarter because you're not allowed to submit a project unlike GameFound, right? And we barely got approved, I think, just a day right before launching the actual Kickstarter. So that affected our campaign in a very negative way because we had a mailing list of six, 7,000 people and only about 200 converted on the, on the first day to, to liking the page. And then we had to go live. Yeah, and so, yeah. you know, our campaign was seriously affected by that, by all that. And where I, where my grief with Kickstarter is, we weren't able to reach anyone in Kickstarter. We weren't able to, to get some clarifications. We weren't able to kind of think about uh, different um, solutions that we can think about together. We literally got no response for weeks and weeks on end. Unlike GameFound, where we email them and, and we get a response within a day. It's true. I actually had a very similar experience where I was like, okay, I'm going to file for my, you know, I, I have a corporation. We have our California Web Options Incorporated, DBA, Next Level Web, or crowdfunding nerds. And that corporation has been around for uh, for a while. But then I wanted to incorporate under Low End Games as an LLC, which would have its own, you know, liability shield and, and that kind of thing. And it's not like, you know, digital marketing and then publishing board games are two different businesses. They should have two different numbers, right? Well, I applied for the the federal number for, for low-end games. And just like you guys, I was like, okay, it'll be here in like four weeks. And it was eight weeks and still not here. And I'm like, oh my goodness, I'm launching in like three weeks from now. And this is just getting really sketchy. So I punched in my, um, you know, my, my EIN for, for my uh, digital marketing corporation. Yeah. Like I need a number here so that I can go preview. And, and I had to deal with that. I was really careful. I had two different bank accounts that as soon as the money hit, you know, we got, uh, you know, $290,000 after Kickstarter and Stripe took their pound of flesh. And I immediately transferred the exact to the penny amount into the other bank account so that I could have a quick, easy record of like my marketing corporation did not just make $300,000. <laughs> you know, yeah. and it was a it was a lot of hoops. But man, what you guys have described is a much much more detailed and and difficult process. So, what order would you like? Just to kind of uh, for people outside the U.S. that that are in you know, like we have sometimes people from Israel or sometimes people from like you know the the really it's like the Middle East is very popular for this problem to occur. Um, what order would you like get the bank account first, get the, you know what I mean? Um, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, the first thing you would do, absolute first thing is set up the company. Delaware has the easy, I'll, I'll tell you right now, Delaware has the easiest element. It has the cheapest from what I've seen, the most business friendly. So you can set up a business there. Kickstarter also, to their credit, has a service that allows you to set up through them company in Delaware. That is the easy part. Uh, and I think the cost is about, if I remember correctly, $500 to, to set up initially, which is which is very, very affordable. I think the the next step is to file for that bank account. And I, I apart from Mercury, if you don't have a US company or US residence, that's never going to happen. So I think I think Mercury would be the only company or the only yeah. bank that's that would be willing to take you. And then you would file for the uh, EID number in parallel. Uh, to the bank account and um and that's, that's the again, federal tax id number yes that's a federal tax id number and that takes at least 10 weeks and at least with constant follow-up and i would i would say make sure that you have about four months or five months before your kickstarter campaign that you've done all this and make sure that you know that unless you've finished all that and you've received all these documents from the relevant authorities 
you cannot even launch a preview page on Kickstarter. So you you got to time it accordingly. And, and one last thing I, I want to say that you got to watch out for. So I did the same thing that you did, Andrew. I got the money in the Cat Iron Arts Inc. Uh, account in, in the U.S. I transferred it to the Cat Iron Arts Middle East account, right? And I got charged with $500 of a transaction <laughs> fee, right? And so, you know, our campaign didn't do as well as yours. It did about $40,000. So after Kickstarter took their pound of flesh and Stripe, $500 is a lot of money, right? It's, it's a good percentage yeah. of the amount of money that you've raised. Uh, so that's another struggle is, and now whatever money we raise from the U.S. account, we immediately pay all the expenses from there and keep the profits, if any, there to pay for our future projects. I mean, we never repatriate the profits anymore. And then in terms of GameFound, was it a similar process or were you able to use your accounts from the UAE? Did they allow you to incorporate those systems or did you just carry on with your US companies and accounts? It was, it was the US registered company again. So we, we had to do it once. The uh, KYC, the Know Your Customer process on, uh, on GameFound is a bit more meticulous and a bit more stringent in terms of like how they want their documents set up. But thankfully, as you mentioned, there's always a human you can talk to. So that went well. But yeah, no, it was the same company that we that we used for for both entity for both uh, platforms. So GameFound uh, likewise doesn't take countries from the UAE. Uh, or, sorry, projects from the UAE. Uh, we're not entirely sure because we already had that U.S. company set up. So we we use that U.S. Okay. company. We never explored I, that. I think it it has to do more with the payment processors that they, that they mm -hmm. both uh, uh, use. I think. It has to do with uh, where Stripe, in the case of Kickstarter, and Aiden, in the case of GameFound, where they are allowed to have uh, uh, accounts for the, the, the business or the individuals, uh, where they're allowed to operate. So I think as those payment processors become uh, uh, bigger and have a, a more of a global impact, and obviously... For those payment processors to to enter new markets, they, there's definitely a legal process for them and uh, compliance uh, compliance process that they have to go through. So it's not entirely on the platform. I'm sure Kickstarter and GameFound would love to be in every single country that they they, they could be in, but uh, they 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 have to deal with uh, the realities of of a banking sector. And whenever you're you're, you're dealing with money. And uh, you're dealing with uh, a lot of countries in the world where uh, the, the the banking system might not be as as rigorous or as uh, yeah. yeah you don't have the oversight that you that that you would like on it. So then, yeah, I think I, the, I think I what my advice would be and what I'd like to see is obviously we'd all like to see Kickstarter in every single country, but at the very least, being able to have local hubs or regional hubs, mm -hmm. so you know, uh, so that you know people from different countries can then easily set up in a country that's more yeah. familiar to them. I think that would be a, a huge win yeah, for sort Kickstarter. Of, sort of a project incubator in, yeah. uh, in, in different regions. Yeah. Yeah. I think that the influence of board games are, are moving far and wide. You know, you have uh, a, a solid stable of designers in India. You get a solid stable of designers in the Middle East. And these are just really emerging markets for, for board games and the thing is, I find that these groups of designers, they quickly connect with the U.S. market because that's kind of the, uh, well, U.S. And, and European markets. Yeah. Those two are kind of like the, uh, the. I mean, it's more Europe, but the U.S. 
I, I'm just counting because of the quantity of consumers there. It's yeah. kind of like the genesis of this whole hobby. And so you have these groups, these pockets of people in different countries um, and designers in different countries that, that, you know, tend to quickly discover Kickstarter um, when the time comes. And I think that, you know, if Kickstarter or GameFound could open themselves up to designers this way, that it would, you know, just that buzz would quickly get around, you know? Yeah. yeah. So might be a way I, to, to capture some new market share that didn't exist. Absolutely. Before. Absolutely. Uh, I think um, going back to, to some of the challenges that we faced. So I've only talked about legal challenges and the time difference was, was another challenge that I've mentioned. I think the third element is not being in your, so ATW just for, for the audience to know about 80% of our sales come from the U S the U S is a massive market for wrestling, wrestling fans and wrestling games. The ability that, that we were not able to be in the U S at every single trade exhibition at every, every single show showing off our product and play testing, not play testing, but playing it with people is a massive, massive, massive disadvantage that we have. We try to make up for it through our excellent customer service. But, uh, you know, some of the other wrestling products out there that are amazing. And, uh, I own a couple of them as well. Uh, when I talk to their owners and their funders, you know, they're almost there on every single show, uh, around the U S so. Uh, I'm not saying it's it's uh, easier, but they have an access to a channel that we don't necessarily have and probably a less expensive channel. So most of our, our audience initially was built up through a massive advertising campaign where we spent you know tens and tens of thousands of dollars. And now we're reaping the rewards of it with future campaigns because our, our advertising spend doesn't have to be as big now that people know us, now that we have a, a bigger customer database, and now that we've proven to people that our game is amazing and, and, and the quality and, and, and the quality of service is, is really great. So I think that's one challenge that people will face is how do you enter the market, market entry from a marketing point of view outside just Facebook and, and, and social media advertising. Yeah. I think that that's actually such a critical problem or rather challenge to, to, to find your own answer to, because um, you know, if you don't, and this is kind of where I find Sometimes people will, that will tell me, you know, oh, we're having a hard time building an email list. So we just decided we're not going to go for email lists at all. We're just going to go for like Kickstarter page follows or maybe Facebook likes or, or um, we're not even going to worry about that at all. And we're just going to keep on with our Twitter account, which has 2000 followers or something like that. I, I feel like this is something that you need to address head on. It is a brick wall and you need to find a way through it. Um, you know, you can't climb over it can't go around it. You either have to stop in your tracks and go back the way you came, or you have to find a way through. And sometimes people will find, you know, a rusty spoon on the ground and dig real slowly. And other times people like, uh, like you guys, you might just headbutt that wall until it falls down, you know, <laughs> you know clothesline that thing. Well, that's all the time we have for this week's episode of crowdfunding nerds. For more resources, articles, and to listen to past podcasts, please visit us at crowdfundingnerds.com. Thank you all again for listening to this week's episode, and we'll see you next week. Stay nerdy.